recording device. If you join me in Bible study tonight, we're not studying a book. We're doing questions and answers, part nine, I think it is. We started last week, but we're just depending on appending them to the other questions and answers from prior years. So this is our second week in a row of doing questions and answers. And this question is two parts. Were captured slaves allowed to continue idol worship among themselves? Were they forced to participate in Jewish worship services? So let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 20 and see what does the Bible say. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Specifically, it's about captured slaves, not just somebody bought into your household like we're talking with Abraham a minute ago. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 14. It says, but the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord gives you. So this gives the children of Israel permission by God that when they conquered a city, as God sent them out to conquer their enemies, they were allowed to take the women and the children as servants to themselves. So that's not a violation of God's law. Now, how they're treated, go to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Verses 44 to 46. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 to 46. It says, And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you. So this is not talking about the children of Israel who've gotten poor and sold themselves into slavery to a neighbor. This is from a conquered nation. From them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. Now go on to Exodus chapter 31. And of course, slave and servant is the same word in Hebrew. So if you don't like one word, use the other. I was just reading what the scripture had. Where did I tell us to go next? Exodus 31. Exodus 21. <coughs> did we go to Exodus 21? Okay. My mind suddenly went elsewhere. Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 to 27. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. Does this begin to show how you're supposed to treat a servant or a slave? With the same kindness that you would expect to be treated yourself? So if you strike the eye and they lose the eye, they go free for the sake of that eye. 
Verse 27, if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So does God allow us to mistreat slaves or servants? The answer is no. Remember, the same word that's translated slave or servant is the word for employee. And then to Exodus chapter 34, I know I haven't answered the question yet. We're just getting to how do you treat these people who have been captured in war and become your slaves or servants. Exodus 34, verse 11. Exodus 34, verses 11 to 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. Not actually wooden images, what are they? Asherah trees, yep. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. You take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So when these people are conquered... Are they allowed to continue idol worship within the land of Israel? The answer is no. So they cannot be permitted to continue their idol worship because what would that happen then? A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Play in the mud, you get dirty. Play in the mud, you get dirty? The same thing would apply. I mean, yes. I, I'm very literal. I think they were supposed to wipe out all the people that were in the land and not leave them. Alive. They were supposed to, but they didn't. Okay, yeah. they were supposed to. So there's no hope of them continuing on. But if you go over here to Alabama and you capture somebody and they're not part of you, and they come back and bring their idols. The same rule's going to apply. Okay. God does not allow idol worship within the land of Israel, whether it's by the children of Israel, or whether it's by servants, or by people that have been captured and made servants. Because it will cause the idol worship to permeate through the people. Just like when they left Egypt, they had to quit everything except God. Correct. They were supposed to. That's a really big failure that we here in the United States have made, is by allowing all these different idols and idol worship and you know, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. We have, as, as believers and Christians, we, we go out of Yeah. So like we're reading in Exodus, it doesn't matter where the people come from. They are not permitted to worship idols in the land of Israel. What happens when Israel starts to worship idols? Then he takes them out of the land. Same thing's going to be true. We've got one more reference, though. Go to Joshua chapter 9. Because Linda makes a good point. They were supposed to wipe out all of these pagan peoples, or at least push them out of the land, but did they do that? No. Joshua chapter 9. No, they didn't. 
Joshua chapter 9, verse 21. When they made treaties with these people that they were supposed to have made war with instead, what happens to them? Joshua chapter 9, verses 21 to 27. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them live because they made an oath, a covenant on the name of God. But let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as, as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves. So they managed to bring them into slavery instead of driving them out of the land. Woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they were forced to be servants in the tabernacle of God. What's that? Are these the ones that became believers and when they left Babylon they, they came out too? Yes, these are the ones that when the children of Israel were allowed to leave the Babylonian captivity and return came back with them. Because serving in the house of God they came to believe in God and wanted to continue to serve the true and living God. Yes. So, yes. The Jubilee year is not going to apply to these people. Interesting. They pass yeah. on as inheritance, as it said in the scriptures. Yeah. Verse 24. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. But they became what? Servants in the tabernacle to carry the wood for the fire and the water for the libations and such things. Oh, they're not Levites. They cannot go in and perform sacrifices and things. In fact, could a non-Jew go into the temple or tabernacle? The answer is no. But they can carry the wood and they can carry the water and they can be servants to those who do the work. Bring it to the doors. So to answer, to answer the questions, were captured slaves allowed to continue idol worship among themselves? The answer is no. Were they forced to participate in Jewish worship services? Not exactly, but they were required to serve the tabernacle and later the temple and therefore became believers in God and chose to. Wayne? Yes, sir. I'm always impressed by them because when you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, they choose to come back. Right. They're obviously very committed to, to the God of Israel and to their long-term role there Yeah. because they choose to come back. Right. Many of the children of Israel chose not to come back. They stayed in Babylon. But these people who were servants to the house of God doing the wood, cut, wood cutting and the water carrying, you're right, they chose to come back because they wanted to worship the true and living God. So that's a good thing. What happened when, oh, say Solomon allowed his foreign wives to bring their foreign gods back into the land? 
It defiled the land. God allows no pagan idolatry in the land. Doesn't matter who's doing it. All right, the next question says, what does, quote, kings and priests to God mean? So let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It's a promise that Messiah makes to the believers, but what does it mean? We'll start in verse 4 to put it in context. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. That doesn't actually mean Asia. What's it mean? Asia Minor, which is today called Turkey. Grace to you and peace. What kind of a greeting is grace to you? It's what? A Gentile greeting, a Greek greeting. And peace, shalom, a Hebrew reading. Greeting. So speaking to all people that are believers, whether Jew or Gentile, in birth. From him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference back to Isaiah referring to the Lord. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. And from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, to the ruler and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Notice that, the ruler over the kings of the earth. When Messiah returns, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Tim who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Tim be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when Messiah returns and establishes his messianic kingdom on the earth, what will the raptured and resurrected saints do? They are raptured and resurrected in Revelation chapter 4. They spent seven years in heaven, I think, in detention going olive baiting gimel but we'll find out. And then when Messiah returns, we return with him to rule and reign. What do kings do? They rule. So Messiah will be ruling over the entire earth. Will he do that all by himself? No, he's going to give each of us a position of authority over nations to help him rule over the nations. And as priests, what do priests do? Priests bring the people to God. Priests bring God to the people. Priests preach the word of God. So we will have, as part of our duties, is ruling over the nations to share the gospel message with all those who are alive in their physical mortal bodies. Those that go into the messianic kingdom alive, not raptured and resurrected, not in their immortal bodies, will have children. And somebody's got to teach them. The fathers are supposed to teach the children, but how has that worked out in the past? Not so well. So we will be helping the Lord lead services and teach people and bringing them to faith in Messiah. Let's go to Revelation 5.10. Yes, um, can I repeat the question? What does, quote, kings and priests to God, end quote, mean? What's it mean? Revelation chapter 5, the key verses 10, but we'll read 9 and 10 together so that we know who's speaking. 
says, and they, referring to the raptured and resurrected saints standing before the throne of God in heaven, sang a new song. That's the same new song we saw in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 and following, right? Yeah. Saying, you, that's our Messiah Yeshua, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Has the first seal been opened yet? No. Chapter 5 begins with the seal and they're looking for somebody that has the authority, the right, the ability to open it. And suddenly they realize, don't cry. Our Messiah Yeshua, that Lamb of God, slain from the time immemorial, is worthy to take the scroll. So we're singing, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So are these the 24 elders? No, because they wouldn't come from all nations. Are these angels? No, because angels aren't redeemed to God by his blood. So who is this? These are the rapture and resurrected saints. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall, here's the answer in scripture, and we shall reign on the earth. So when Messiah sets up his throne, we will have thrones as well. I see a question. I, I this isn't. Don't get the concept. This isn't in heaven. The future, the, the good part that's coming. The millennial kingdom. Thought, no, it's not. There's some of us that are in our immortal bodies, having been raptured and resurrected, and the rest are physical living beings. But they're all believers. At the start. But what about the children that are born over the thousand-year millennial kingdom? Are they born believers? No, they're not. So we shall reign on the earth. Go ahead. What's the question? Can, I don't know if we're going to stay women or not. Women ah, that question's coming up. Oh. That question's okay. coming up. So just hold that one. It was asked by somebody else, but okay. it's coming. Okay, so you said that the resurrected, those of us that come back, those of us that come back in our resurrected bodies do not have children. No, we're not. But, but we're in a different state than the human. I'm going to call them human. Okay. <laughs> yes, we will be in a different state. What does it say? Say, turn, keep, keep your finger in Revelation and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Bible does not tell us much about what our bodies are going to be like. But they do tell us this, starting in verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, meaning is not able to, inherit the kingdom of God. Can you and I go stand on the planet Neptune? The answer is no. Nor can we stand up in heaven in this physical mortal body. It wouldn't work. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. If you all, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, meaning not subject to sin, not subject to death, not subject to illness, not even COVID. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And that's about all it tells us. Our body will be like that which Messiah had when he arose. Did he eat fish? And walk through doors and walls. What kind of body is that? We'll find out. Okay, on to Revelation chapter 20, which also talks about what it means to be kings and priests in a kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, verse 21. What? It's not 21, but it is chapter 20. So start in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yeshua and for the word of God. So these are people that were not saved at the rapture and resurrection in Revelation 4. But they got saved during the tribulation period and died as martyrs. It says, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So these people got saved during the tribulation period but died. Well, they missed the rapture and the resurrection because they weren't saved then. So what happens to them? They're the gleanings. The last line of verse 4 says, And they lived and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. They were resurrected, they were given their crowns, and they ruled and reigned with Messiah for the thousand-year millennial kingdom. They didn't. But, but they did have the 144,000 teaching them something. So they may have gotten to do the Olive Bay and Gimel Dalit. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. Next one is a good question. Because there are all kinds of books on this topic that they just all disagree. But it says, is there a right way, quote unquote, to pray? Kneeling, standing, lying in bed, with head bowed, looking up, hands raised, silently, out loud. You know, there are whole groups of folks out there that say, you can't kneel to pray, that that's pagan. And you can't close your eyes, and you can't this, and you can't that. So it's a really good question. So let's look and see what does the Bible say. How do they do it when they fall out of an airplane? <laughs> I think they pray to Geronimo, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Matthew chapter 6. Wayne, is that the reason why Jews won't bow? Uh-huh, in part. Now, it's not all, it's just some. I 
and he went to uh, be made a lord by the Queen and she sort of knights him, he's a sir, because he was a, sir, a knight as well. The protocol was a bit of a problem because normally you kneel for that, but because he's Jewish, uh, he can't bow, so they had some extraordinary correct, um, contraption set up, which wasn't exactly a kneeling stool, which wasn't exactly so that it neither were compromised. It was quite funny, really. Yeah. If you remember in the book of Esther, Mordecai really upsets Haman because he refuses to bow before Haman. Yeah. So there are groups of Jews that... There are examples of people in, in uh, the Old Testament bowing. Yeah. It's something came along later, but I can't work, find out when. Yeah, and it's not all. It's just some groups. Just like, I remember the first time that I was in Israel at the Temple Institute, the lady up front was teaching us about all the things that I took a picture, and people just about had a heart attack. And they said, she's ultra-Orthodox, they don't allow photographs. It's like, I'll put it away. <laughs> what, do, what do I do now? Okay. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. This is the first scripture I see in the New Testament that talks about how to pray. And it's only the first of many, so. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 7 says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Who's he calling the hypocrites? The scribes and Pharisees. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Is that a problem that they're standing? No. The problem is their rationale, their reasoning, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But, when you, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father, who is in the secret place. Your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's not actually talking about going into a room and shutting the door. Do you realize that? It's talking about pulling the prayer shawl up over the head and you close off the front. That's the prayer clause that is described in the Bible. It's shutting the world out and just being alone with God. So let's go to Matthew 26. That scripture was more about your rationale. Why are you praying? Make sure it's with the right motivation. Matthew 26, verse 39. This is talking about Messiah. Did Messiah commit any sins? No. Then what he does, we can do. It says he went a little further and fell on his face. That is, he prostrates himself, so he's lying down, face down on the ground. And prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he said, okay, to pray while lying down. Clearly, because Messiah did it. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. What color are the words? They're red. So these are Messiah's words. So are they true? They are true. 
verse 25. Mark 11, 25 says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So is it okay to pray standing? Yes. So you can pray lying down. You can pray standing. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Verse 46. Messiah is speaking, where is he? He's in the temple. And says to them, it is written, my house, that's the temple, is a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. So is it okay to pray in the temple? Yes, so we've seen so far you can pray lying down, you can pray standing, you can pray in the temple. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They're in the upper room. Which means they're where? They're in Jerusalem. And they're not alone, right? They're in a group. A group that are gathered together for worship. Says these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So when you were in your room with the prayer shawl pulled up over your head, you were alone. Is it okay to pray alone? Yes. Here they're gathered in the upper room and they're praying. Is it okay to pray together? Yes, it is. Let's go to Acts chapter 9, verse 40. This is Peter. Acts chapter 9, verse 40. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. Can one pray when kneeling? Yes. So you can pray when, when lying down, when standing in a group or by yourself. You could do it while kneeling. And we know that Peter is a very devout Jew. Because the very next chapter is where he talks about I've never eaten anything common or unclean. The very next chapter is where he says I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And he's doing the 9, 12, and 3 o'clock prayers. He's doing 9, 12, and 3 p.m. prayers. So is praying while kneeling a pagan act? No, it is not. Do people sometimes say it is? Yeah, but usually they don't have anything to back up. Their opinion. You know, and if this was a pagan act, if this was a pagan act, would God have healed exactly and answered God. Peter's prayer? No. God would not have and we know that from Proverbs, don't we? Yeah. Next one's in Acts chapter ten. Speaking of Acts chapter ten and Peter's vision, verse nine. The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So can we pray on a housetop? Yep, the sixth hour. We can. 
Only I warn you, in those days, rooftops were flat. So you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? Be careful, standing on the top of the roof. Acts chapter 10, verse 30. So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. So you can pray on the rooftop. Can you pray in the house? Yes, you can pray in the house. Let's go to Acts 12.12. 12. To show that it's not just Peter and Cornelius. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So they're gathered together in the house praying. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day. Is it okay to pray on the Sabbath day? Let's keep reading. On the Sabbath day, we went out, to, out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. So can you pray on Shabbat? Yes. Can you pray on Shabbat by a riverside? Yes. Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Acts chapter 20, verse 36. This is the Apostle Paul. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So he is kneeling down to pray. And he's praying with a group, all praying together. In Acts 21, verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with the wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. So you can pray by a river. Can you pray by the seashore? Yeah. Yes, you can. Can you kneel down to do it? Yes, can you put your head underwater to do it? I don't recommend that. Okay. Acts twenty two seventeen. Acts twenty two seventeen. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. So I'm saying to me, make haste to get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So again, publicly praying, praying in the temple in Jerusalem. No problem. Last scripture is 1 Timothy. 1 2, verse 8. First Timothy, not Second Timothy, chapter two, verse eight. <coughs> I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. Pray where? Everywhere. everywhere. 
lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So can we pray with our hands up? Yes, we can. Where can we pray? Everywhere. Out of all these scriptures, we've only seen one criticism of the way prayer was done. It was for the wrong motives. It was to be seen by men to receive the praise of men. Any other time do we see any criticism of the way they prayed to God? The answer is no. So you can pray to God anywhere, anytime, any way. Just make sure the motive is pure. Yes, sir. As believing Gentiles, will we have access to the temple? As believing Gentiles, will we have access to the temple? The answer is yes. Even that third temple that's being that's about to be built. Some of the news today said it was being built, but I think they just mean things are being prepared for the building. Israel is calling it, the, uh, what do they say? Let me get the exact words. A house of prayer for all nations. That all nations will be welcome to come pray in it. They're using the words of Isaiah 56. And you're looking at me like, you sure it's going to happen? I said that's what they're saying. We'll see. My, my look is more of a house of worship for all nations. But aren't the Jews the one building the temple? We shall see, won't we? Well, I mean the ones that are preparing for it. But they're not alone. Many Gentiles have also contributed substantial amounts of money and gold and silver and things toward the building of it. And there's a lot more Gentile involvement than people tend to realize. Yes, sir. Right. So what is your attitude? How is your heart? Right. Are you, are you turning your ear from Torah? Because that, that sounds to me like that's an automatic rejection of the prayer. That's what it says. Yep. Yes, sir. Quick follow-up. Quick follow-up. So if I understand correctly, the Jews that are in the preparation for the Third Temple. The Jews that are in preparation of the Third Temple. That are reviewing and going back and making sure that the priests, Levites, are going to be ready. Yeah. Are they going to be the ones that are going to be the Levites for real? Yes. But they're not believers. They're Jujus. So? Jujus. <laughs> <laughs> they're not believing Jews. You are correct. Yeah, but this third temple is not the one Messiah resides in. This is the one the false Messiah will defile. That's what it sounds like when it says for all, like it sounds like a one world order kind of. Yes, it does, doesn't it? For all nations, one world religion. Let me ask you this. Why when Messiah returns, does he build a new temple? Why doesn't he just say, this one's just fine and dandy? <laughs> it is rededicated on Hanukkah too, right. So all these out loud. No, those that were covered with your talit in your own prayer closet, those are by yourself. But are they still spoken? 
can be yes, can be no. Remember, God hears the meditation of your heart. It can be out loud. It can be by yourself. It can be in a group. It can be in... Yes, sir? Are you going to continue on with this about praying in the Spirit? Is that going to be covered? Not in this question, but there's more questions to come. Okay. We have more than 100 questions yet to come. Okay. Is that, is that covered in one of them? We'll find out, won't we? Okay, then. We will. I haven't finished answering all the questions uh, yet. Uh, wasn't Anna praying out loud and they thought she was drunk? Not Anna. I mean, Hannah. 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 Sorry. Guys, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> all right. Next question. Is it by the same person? I don't know. Okay. Question is, who was Asaph? A-S-A-P-H. Now, there's more than one Asaph in the scripture. But I assume the question was about Asaph, who was the Levite musician. So assuming that, let's go look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50. And notice the first line is a psalm of Asaph, or Asaph, however you prefer to pronounce it. He also wrote Psalm 73 to 83. So let's turn to 73. <clears throat> psalm 73 begins book 3. And Psalm 73 says the Psalm of Asaph. 74, a contemplation of Asaph. 75, a Psalm of Asaph. So who was this? Well, he wrote these psalms during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. So he was a Levite musician in charge of the Levitical choirs during the reigns of David and Solomon. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He's mentioned specifically in verse 39, but we want to start reading with verse 31. So 1 Chronicles chapter 6. It can be confusing when there's more than one person in the Bible with a name, like Asaph. Why are other people named Asaph? Probably because they're descendants of, or they're named after somebody famous in Israel. Um, anybody here, somebody named after George Washington or... Or whoever. We can make, okay. First Chronicles chapter 6. Are we there? Start in verse 31. He's mentioned in 39. Let's start in 31. Now these are the men who David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. So who does the singing in the temple? It's not the priests. It's the Levites. 32, they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle and meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohatites, what are Kohatites? They descend from Kohat. Where Haman the singer, he's mentioned the Psalms too, isn't he? the son of Yoel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Eliel, the son of Toa, the son of Zuf, 
the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahat, the son of Amasai, the son of Alkanah, the son of Joel, the son of Azariah, the son of Zephaniah, the son of Tahat, the son of Asir, the son of Abiasoth, the son of Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and his brother Asaph. <laughs> I just thought that was cool. And his brother Asaph, who stood at his right hand, was Asaph the son of Berechiah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Michael, the son of Basiah, the son of Malchiah, the son of Ethni, the son of Zerah, the son of Adiah, the son of Ethan, the son of Zema, the son of Shemai, the son of Jaha, and it just goes on. But there he is, right there in third night, and his brother Asaph. That's proof that scripture is inspired. <laughs> you couldn't have done that if you weren't inspired. I couldn't. Have. No, nobody could. Let's go to First Chronicles 15. So we know we know he was appointed by David to be in the Levitical singers in the temple. Or the tabernacle at that time. He continues in the temple when Solomon builds it. First Chronicles 15. We'll just do the short version, 17 through 19. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Yoel, and of his brethren, Asaph, there's the Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of their brethren, the sons of Merari, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and within their, their brethren of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaaziel, Shemiramot, Jehiel, Uni, Eliav, Benaiah, Maaseiah, Mattathiah, Eliphelah, Mekneah, Obed-Edom, and Jael the gatekeepers. One of these days, somebody's going to be named Bill. But, okay. Yeah. First Chronicles chapter 16. What's that? Yeah, there was a Ben. I got a little asterisk there that says, yeah, he gets omitted in some of the texts. Okay. First Chronicles 16. Yeah. I'm sure it was short for Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. First Chronicles 16, verses 4 to 7. Talking about David. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, the chief. So he wasn't just one of the Levite singers. He was the chief Levite singer. And then in 2 Chronicles 16, we're going to find out he continued through the reign of Solomon. 2 Chronicles 16, verses 4 to 7. Really? That's the one you just had. Okay, so drop that one. But that tells us who he is anyway. He is the chief Levite singer in the temple during the reigns of David and Solomon. So let's go on to the next question. According to sages slash experts, when was the Bible originally written? 
This one I was a little less clear on what the question was, but let me answer it and then we'll see if I got it answered. The Old Testament began to be written in about the year 1400. And the Old Testament was finished about the year 450 BCE. So from 1400 to 450 BCE, it was written. The New Testament was written between 51 and 96 AD. That's when the books were written. The Old Testament was already completed as a collection, a codex, by the time the first century came around. So very shortly after 450, it was an accepted collection of books that was complete. As far as the entire Bible as we have it today, the canon, it was canonized by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the first Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. So the Council of Nicaea put most of the books in there, but not all. The last book to be added was the book of James, because it was simply too Jewish, and they didn't like it. So you remember, they changed some things in it, right? Let's go to the book of James and look at some of the things they just had problems with. Book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2. Oops, whoops. Oh, I got three red numbers out there. I hadn't seen any red numbers. Let me see. Why do the Orthodox, she was ultra-Orthodox, not allow photos. She can, they consider that to be the same as a graven image. I disagree because a graven image is one to be worshipped and the photograph is not that, but that's what they think anyway. And it says Native American customs used to be that they too would refuse because it would steal their soul. That wasn't the Jewish reason. Their reason was they didn't want anything to be considered an idolatrous image. The next question says, is giving money to the Temple Institute providing Satan with the means for him to step up and take it over, or is it calling on Messiah to return and fill prophecy? I say the latter. We have an obligation in the scripture to rebuild the temple, and it will be used to worship God until the midpoint of the tribulation period when the false Messiah is going to take it over. And the number three was, in my opinion, it. Okay. Book of James, chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Problem is that word is not assembly. Assembly in Hebrew is kahal. This word is synagogue. And a Catholic church just could not accept the fact that the first believers in Messiah met in synagogues. Because that means meeting on Shabbat. What's that name for that again? The name for assembly? I mean, what is the word? Assembly, synagogue? synagogue is the word here, synagogan. Uh, the Hebrew word for an assembly is a kahal. And 
they changed it from synagogue to assembly because they didn't want people to know that the believers were meeting in synagogues up until much later than the first century. That was one of the things. The other is, it says, show me your works. They didn't like that, but they finally decided once they changed a synagogue to assembly that they could take it. That was the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. And then <clears throat> Jerome published the Latin Vulgate about 400 AD, so just within 19 years of the completion of the canon. So it's been these same books since the Council of Constantinople, the first one in 381 AD. Question there. Okay. Uh, I can't remember, but the Vulgate is not based on the received text. Is that correct? There wasn't anything else. Is this on the Alexandrian, or where did they get their translation? The the two outliers, the Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, didn't exist back in 400 A.D. They don't come around for much later. So is the Vulgate based on the original documents? Yeah. yeah. A good video to watch is the third Lamp in the Dark series called Bridge to Babylon. It shows how the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus came to be and how they got put into the Westcott Hort text, who did it, what the motivation was, and when it was done. And it was long after 400 A.D. What's that? Lamp in the Dark 3. It's on YouTube. And it's called A Bridge to Babylon. It's Lamp in the Dark, the third movie of the series. I have sent out the links to it before. I can always send it out again. But they're on YouTube. Yes, ma'am. Constantine and, and the Pope were changing everything? Yes. And do, can we go back and make sure they didn't change what we're reading? The answer to that is no. What is her question? Her question was, since this is done in the 4th century during the reign of Constantine, how do we know they got the right books in the New Testament? How do we know they didn't change things? The answer is, there's no way to go back and see. We just have to keep comparing what's in the New Testament to the Old Testament and make sure it's consistent. But I once had a Catholic gentleman come to my congregation in Alabama and say, you read the Bible, don't you? I said, yes. He said, you only have the Pope's word that that's the Bible because the Pope is the one who made the codex. And therefore, if you accept the Pope's authority there, you should accept the Pope's authority everywhere. And my response was, maybe I should be a little less sure about what's in the Codex. But, okay. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was curious on that same kind of note. Has there, since the second one, I forget. Since the second one, the first Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D., No, these are the books of the canon. There's all kinds of scholars today that say, well, we should include this other book and that other book. I thought the attendees were the one that put the thing together. The Pope only approved it. 
I mean, I thought the attendees actually debated for a long period of time over this, that, and the other. Including the Pope. They all argued, they all fought, and this is what they all came up with, and the Pope puts the stamp on it. When did they first have a Pope? When did they first have a Pope? The person who's called a Pope. That wasn't in the questions here. <laughs> Catholic Church says Peter was the first pope, so they've had one from the beginning, but we all know that isn't true. So let's go on to the next question, because I haven't researched that one to find out when the first one was that I would consider a pope. Well, the pope should really be like a great rabbi. Yeah, he should be. Pope should be, but... That's not who they picked. Okay. Yeah, okay. Next. Next one. Yep. Any of the historical shows they show in the Pope's, you just shouldn't watch. They're so filthy. So I just have to turn them off. So, if you look at Matthew 24, 5... So let's go to Matthew 24, 5, since the question is going to deal with it. Matthew 24, 5. And not all the questions come from the same person, and they're intermixed so that nobody gets called out in a carpet. That's never my intention. Matthew 24, 5. For many will come in my name, comma, saying, I am the Christ, comma, and will deceive many. So if you look at Matthew 24, 5, without punctuation, which I assume the original Hebrew would not have had, and that is true. The original Hebrew has two punctuation marks, the et nach and the other one. And one indicates the middle of a sentence, the middle of a verse, you're supposed to pause and take a breath, and then go on. And the other indicates the end of the verse, of course, they were not in the original, but they've been added to help us in our reading of it. So the original Hebrew, Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. No, it did not have the commas. And then it, the person quotes, For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ who will deceive many. The person says, I've always read this as many people declaring themselves to be the Messiah and tricking people into believing that they are, and that is true. So her understanding there is historically correct. But if you consider this without the punctuation, could Yeshua have been saying that many will come in Yeshua's name saying that Yeshua is the Messiah and these people will deceive many? Perhaps through false teachings in Yeshua's name. For example, by misrepresenting Yeshua as the church has misrepresented him over the last 2,000 years where it claimed it represented Yeshua while at the same time declaring Yeshua drank blood and ate human flesh, etc. So I understand where the person is coming from, and it's a, a very great concept and something to think about, but no, it's not correct. Her original, or that person's original understanding is correct. And I'll explain why in a moment, but first... This person is correct that there are many warnings in the scripture about false teachers. Let's start with Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. 
There are many warnings in the scriptures about false teachers and being careful, be aware of them. Matthew 7, 15, Messiah's words says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Let's go next to Matthew 24, verse 11. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. The words again are read. Messiah again warning us about false prophets and false teachers. And what is the next verse in Matthew 24? And because lawlessness will abound, love of many will grow cold. Notice how the lawlessness will abound follows the false prophets, the false teachers. Yes, Daniel. This is just some, I can't read that verse. Good and loud. I can't read verse 5 any other way now. Now that you've mentioned it as like how she or that person said, but if you misrepresent Messiah in a different light, would you be representing him as a false prophet? Yes. If you teach as some of these false teachers do, you make Messiah a false prophet and a false teacher. So let's go on to Second Corinthians. Yes. That, like saying, that's your, you know, that's Jesus of Nazareth right here because he's changing the times and the laws and all that. Yeah, the anti missionaries make full use of all the bad teachings from the church. Okay. Yes, sir? That is extrapolated out to not just prophets or false prophets, but people who are spreading. I'm going to call lies because they don't know the scriptures. Is that the same? I mean, they're they're false. Right, they're false teachers. Whatever they are, they're it false. doesn't say they intend to be false, but they're false because they're teaching a bad message. What did Paul say? If you teach any other message, be a man, anathema. Yeah, yeah. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse thirteen. Paul is warning people, for such are false prophets, false apostles, false teachers. You can put any word in there like that. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Messiah. So the false teachers, like Messiah said in Matthew 7, pretend to be godly teachers, and yet they're leading people astray. So Messiah warned us, Paul warned us, go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter will warn us. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, talking about in days past. Even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. That's like the transubstantiation this person mentions. And bring on themselves swift destruction. 
And look at 1 John 4. John warns us about false teachers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved. Oops, you're not there yet. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So Messiah warns us, Paul warns us, Peter warns us, John warns us. Now let's get back and answer the question. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 5. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, it says, For many will come in my name, saying. That word saying there in Hebrew is lamor. You can spell it L-E-M-O-R-E, or any other way that makes you say lamor. What it means is that which follows is a quote. So the phrase, I am the Messiah, should be in quotes. That's what the word saying indicates. So the I in the quotes refers back to the many who are speaking. So they're not claiming that Yeshua is the Messiah. They're claiming themselves to be the Messiah. Okay. Next question, Matthew 27, 60. Matthew chapter 27, verse 60. Matthew chapter 27. We'll read 59 and 60 to give the full sentence. So it's when Joseph, that's Joseph of Arimathea, of course, had taken the body, that's Messiah's body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. How many of you have been to that tomb? It's right at the edge of a... Big rock, but a field, a garden, a place where they grow food. So that's the essence of the question here. Matthew 27, 60. Why was the tomb located so close to an olive grove slash olive press when the tomb would be considered unclean? Were there other tombs nearby? Was the placement of tombs in the midst of food producing areas common or unusual? Good question, right? So let's just come to the answer. The tomb would be unclean after it had been used. That's true. But only the tomb or cave in which the body has been placed. Where is Abraham buried? In Machpelah. Why did he buy Machpelah? As a burial place for his wife. The cave of Machpelah was at the edge of the field. The field is usable for growing and agriculture and stuff, but the tomb, which is in the Rocky Mountain, that area is not. But burying a body in that tomb doesn't defile the land. It just defiles the tomb where the body is placed. So yeah, it was not at all uncommon to have a tomb at the edge of a field because you can't cultivate the mountain in which the tomb is cut. 
And yes, there are other tombs in the Garden of Gethsemane area. One place that I have been that most people don't ever get to go in the Garden of Gethsemane is the tomb where Mary is buried. Mary, the mother of Messiah. The reason the Catholic Church does not allow people to go in there is because you can see in the cave and you can see the bones. Catholic Church teaches that Mary ascended bodily like Messiah, but yet they venerate and worship the, the tomb where she's buried because you can still see the bones. So they don't allow many people to go in there. That's just what's been traditionally taught from the time. You remember Queen Helena, the most, yeah. most successful architect yeah. and not architect, archaeologist of all time. Yeah. yeah. But they venerated as Mary's tomb. And yes, that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where is the largest Jewish graveyard in the world? It's on the Mount of Olives where you find the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's only the tomb or cave that is unclean. When, when people would go up to Jerusalem for the festivals, the authorities would whitewash the tombs that had been used, the caves that had been used as tombs, so that if a rainstorm came up, the pilgrims wouldn't run into it to be defiled. Walking by it wasn't a problem. Going inside it, that's the problem. So it's not in the garden, it's just near it, but there are other tombs nearby. And there are many tombs on the Mount of Olives since Ezekiel 43 indicates Messiah will return there. So they, since Messiah will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, that's where everybody wants to be buried. Yes, ma'am. Once the body is removed, can it be sanctified again? Once the body is removed, can it be sanctified or made holy again? The answer is no. Once they're dead, it's dead. Once they're dead, it's dead. Yep, it's unclean. So whitewashing, it doesn't help. No. In Deuteronomy 14.21, oh, this is a good question. It's a hard question, but a good question. Deuteronomy 14.21. I got so many good questions. Just have to make sure I give decent answers. Deuteronomy 14.21. It says, you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. Notice, of itself is in italics. Deuteronomy chapter 14. That's verse 21. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. But you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Remember, these originally weren't in verses. So... But the point is, you can't eat it, but you can give it to an alien who's within your gates, or you may sell it to a foreigner. So that brings up the question, why is the gear, and yes, that word alien is gear, just like every other occasion where it's translated stranger. It's no different. Appearing as an exception to God's law when it comes to eating something that died of itself. And the word gear is Hebrew word 1616. It is certainly treating the gear differently here, whereas in other scriptures we see the gear, which is us being grafted in. Here the gear is not included in, the, in God saying, quote, 
for you are a holy people to Adonai your God, end quote. Also, why can the dead thing be given to the gear and sold to the nokri? Of course, that's the other word there. You can sell it to the, you can give it to the alien, that's the gear, or you may sell it to the foreigner, that's the nokri. Hebrew word 5237. So why can you give it to some and sell it to others? You can't sell it to the gear. So what is this? These people were accustomed to eating these things if they're aliens and foreigners. They're not accustomed to following God's law. So let's follow that Ibex down the trail because that's where we're going. So first of all, first thing to note, these are clean animals. These are lambs, these are goats, these are not pigs and things like that. They're animals that died without ritual slaughter. An animal can only be eaten after its throat is slit, the blood is drained. There's a kosher way to slaughter. It says they're unclean to the native Israelite and to the stranger, the gear. Let's go to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17. So the gear is not allowed to eat it either. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 17, verses 15 and 16. Hey, hang on. We're, we're following the ibex down the trail. Yes, you're right. It says we can give it to them. It doesn't say they can take it. So... I know, I know. Let's follow the Ibex. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 17, verse 15 says, And every person who eats what dies naturally, or always torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. So the stranger is no more allowed to eat the animal that dies of itself than the native born is. Hmm. So a gear who is truly seeking the Lord will not eat it. But how do you know how can you tell whether the gear is truly wanting to worship the Lord or whether they've come to the land of Israel for a different purpose? Maybe they're trying to get away from their ex-wife or, you know, whatever the reason. But, um, so one who has not yet learned the Torah, being new to the land, they don't have a possession in the land. They may not have food to eat. And this is something that they may then turn to and eat because they have not learned yet. But as they grow and as they learn, they will learn to refuse it. So I think there's a couple things here. One is, it will demonstrate whether the gear is truly seeking to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and willing to participate in the Torah and the commandments of God as they're required to do or whether they're not. And somebody who's brand new to the land, who doesn't know, who hasn't learned, they may have nothing else to eat. But the nokri, the nokri, they're not dwelling in the land. They're passing through. 
why did the caravans of these these aliens pass through the land? It's a main thoroughfare. They're usually coming through for commerce. They have no interest in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have no interest in following the commandments. They're not going to follow the commandments. So God says, you can sell it to them because they don't care anyway. And they have plenty of money because they're merchants. Whereas the Gare who's new to the land may not have anything else to eat. That's the best I could do with that one. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. That just brings me to another question. Which is? Okay, so at, Pes at Pesach, we get rid of all the leaven yes. products, right? I throw them in the trash, but could I be giving them to my neighbors? I wouldn't. I throw them in trash myself. Okay. Okay. Because I don't want to lead my neighbor into sin. Okay, next question. Job, chapter 1. Job, chapter 1. So would you say that Deuteronomy 14, 21 thing is kind of like the, kind of the equivalent of God saying to Peter, rise, Peter, kill, and eat? Yeah, I'd say it's kind of like rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Will Peter kill and eat, or will he refuse? The gear should refuse the meat. So you'll see whether he's interested in following after God or not. Yep. Job chapter 40 verse... No, it's not. It's Job chapter 1. What did I say? Job 1. Not chapter 40 verse 1. Got to get the one in the right place. Job 1.16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Was that fire from God? No, but the friend, quote unquote, thought it was. But here's the question. Discussing Job 1.16 and referencing the fire from heaven, quote unquote, you said in the first lesson of Job in 2017 that Satan has power over lightning. Is power over the elements shared between God and Satan? Or is it the case of God allowing Satan to use the elements at certain times? So for example, if we're in a drought, how do we discern whether it's God saying he wants to get our attention or it's Satan saying, here, take that with a view of harming us with God's permission, presumably. See, these are some pretty tough but good questions. Can Satan call fire down from heaven? Yes. We know that because of, go to Revelation, first in chapter 7. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Revelation chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on the tree. So these four angels are controlling the weather and the forces of nature. Are these out of the Euphrates? 
Nope, these are God's angels. They're holding back all these things until the servants of God get sealed. So God puts angels in charge of nature, if you want to refer to it that way. Now go to Revelation 13. This is about the false prophet and the false messiah. Revelation 13, verse 11. Revelation 13, starting in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is called the false prophet. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So this false prophet is on Satan's side. And the authority ultimately comes from Satan to allow him to call down fire from heaven. Now, does Satan need God's permission for that? Yes, he does. Why would God allow him to have the false prophet do such signs and wonders? Deuteronomy 13. To see, will you follow a false prophet who does signs and wonders to lead you away from God? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 13. In the book of Job, did Satan have to get God's permission before he brought these things on Job? Yes, he did. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, while calling fire from heaven, that's a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known. Let us serve them. Is that not what the false prophet's doing, saying, Worship the first beast? You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. So know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. And keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. Etc, etc. Okay. So the answer to the question is. Satan needs God's permission to do something like calling fire down from heaven. Why does God permit it? As a test to see, will you follow the Lord your God or not? I mean, if I did a miraculous thing right now and called up the dead and have you say, praise Satan, what are you going to do? You're going to run. That's right. It doesn't matter that I was able to do something miraculous. It's a test from God. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. But it would be presumption to say... That tornado was caused by God to destroy the people who are evil. Or Correct. That tornado was caused by Satan because he was destroying good people. Right. We can't make those calls. So I think sometimes we have an inkling to make the call, maybe not. So the rest of the question was, we're in a drought. Do we discern whether it's God, etc.? 
So my answer to this is we discern by looking at the context, the situation. Does the Lord have reason to be judging us to call us to repentance? Are we, say, in the United States pushing Israel to give away the covenant land that God said thou shalt not give away? When we're doing things like that, and we have great famine in half the nation and floods destroying the food in the other half, we might think that perhaps God is trying to call us to repentance. But, on the other hand, Job was walking in righteousness and holiness. He had no reason to think that God is punishing me to call me back to repentance. So, we discern by looking at the circumstances, look at ourselves. Do we deserve God's judgment to be chastisement to call us to repentance? Other than that, you can never with 100% certainty say God did this or God allowed it. Unless God tells you. Unless God tells us. What about Korah? When when you've got a prophet that says, God's about to do this, and he does it, then that's not too hard to discern where it came from. Well, I mean, the point I was wanting to, you know, bring up was God does do things to destroy the wicked. Sure. Like with Korah. And like with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. But if you looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, would you say, I wonder if God had reason to judge Sodom and Gomorrah? You would say, absolutely. But you look at Job, and Job is a righteous man. Then you think, wonder if Satan's about. When I look at America, do I see reason for God to be judging us? Yeah. Okay, one more question in the next 30 seconds. Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Verses 22 to 24. Job chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. It says, It is all one thing, therefore I say, He destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, He laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of His judges. If it's not He, who else could it be? So the question is referencing he with a capital H as he is capitalized elsewhere in the Bible to connote God, human translators' capitalizations, of course. However, in the 2017 study of Job, you indicated that the he here is Satan. Does this provide an example of why we should be very careful not to take at face value capitalization, or no capitalization for that matter, given that it is potentially an error of the translator or publisher? The answer to that question is yes. So in this portion of Job, my Tanakh does not capitalize the word he. The Tanakh recognizes that God does not laugh at the plight of the innocent. So they recognize that that he there is not referring to God. So yes, this is a reason not to capitalize not to take capitalization at face value. Do you think the Lord would really laugh at the plight of the innocent when they're being tortured? Of course not. So it says, perhaps one of Job's friends might think so, 
but we know better. So the person who translates this as a he is saying that Job's friend thinks God is doing this. And the Tanakh doesn't capitalize it because they say we know that God does not do this. So they actually put in, in italics, an evil one. To help people understand that it's not referring to God doing these things. This is Job speaking, and I think Job is saying, there is an evil. But yeah. This is not God. This is, there is an evil yes. that does this. Yeah. So Job's friends think God's doing it. Right. Job doesn't think God is doing he this. Doesn't. He knows God's not doing this. Because he knows that in God's eyes, he is a righteous man. Yes, ma'am. Are all the he's at 23 and 24 going to be lowercase? If I was translating it, yes, I would do it lowercase. Yep. And my Tanakh does it lowercase because they know that God would never do this and they don't want people to get misled thinking that he would. And with that, we're out of time. We'll close our Bible study site with a prayer.